A word of caution. This episode features descriptions of the murder of young children that could be triggering for some individuals. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. In the fall of 1994, I was a freshman in college. When a national news story broke back then, you couldn't turn on your television without seeing it broadcast almost 24 hours a day. So when a young mother in South Carolina claimed a black man had stolen her car with her two young children inside, I took note. Along with everyone else, I watched the updates whenever they came on, praying the three-year-old and 14-month-old little boys had been found safe. Then I saw the first interview with the mother. More than eight days since Susan Smith claims a carjacker stole her two babies. What everyone hoped would be a joyous appearance by Susan and David Smith becomes yet another anguished plea. I would like to say to whoever has my children that they please, I mean, please bring them home to us where they belong. She stared down at her feet the entire time. She sounded tearful, but there were no tears. Her voice took on an unnatural pitch when she spoke. Her estranged husband, who she was separated from at the time, stood beside her helplessly. I was only 18 years old, but one thought instantly came to mind. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 31, Where are the Children? On October 25, 1995, 23-year-old Susan Smith called the police in the small town of Union, South Carolina, saying she had been carjacked by a black man with a gun while she was sitting at a stoplight. He then made her drive her burgundy Mazda sedan for several miles before forcing her out of the car and driving away with her two small children Michael, age three, and Alex, age 14 months, still inside. She probably didn't know that the simple act of her calling the police would result in worldwide media coverage, with reporters and news stations clamoring for an interview with the young mother. For eight long days, members of the community of Union, South Carolina, kept their eyes peeled for that Mazda with the two car seats. Police produced a sketch of the man Susan claimed took her sons. They hoped those two little boys would turn up somewhere, anywhere, alive, and that maybe this carjacker had shown some mercy to the children. But that's not the way the story ended. It didn't take long for police to quietly express doubts among themselves regarding Susan's explanation of the carjacking. First of all, the stoplight Susan claimed she was stopped at was always green unless cross traffic passed through. That wasn't the case at the late hour Susan was in her car. They point blank asked her if there were other cars around at the time she was there, 
She said there weren't. Investigators also discovered a letter from a man Susan had been dating, the son of the chief executive of the mill she worked at as a secretary. This letter stated the man wanted to be with her, but didn't want a family. Susan Smith had grown up Susan Lee Vaughn. Her father took his own life when she was a young girl, and her mother remarried a man named Beverly Russell when Susan was seven. At age 15, she told a school guidance counselor her stepfather had touched her inappropriately and kissed her. No charges were ever filed because his wife and Susan declined to press charges. On November 3rd, nine days after Susan reported the carjacking, Sheriff Howard Wells, who had figured out the truth somewhere deep in the core of his being, sat with Susan and took her hands. He prayed with her and asked if she was ready to tell the truth about where her sons were. She took a deep breath and said, my children are not all right. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael three and Alexander 14 months. She said that she intended to drive her car into nearby John D. Long Lake and end the lives of herself and her two young sons. Instead, she drove to the boat ramp, got out of the car, released the parking brake, and let Michael and Alex, still strapped into their car seats, drown. At Susan's trial in July 1995, all the skeletons in her closet were brought to light. Not only did jurors realize she had been told by a love interest that he didn't want to date a woman with kids, she'd also been having sex with her stepfather who had molested her at age 15 a few months before Michael and Alex died. Her husband had cheated on her. She had cheated on him. They were estranged when the boys first went missing and Susan was suicidal. As true crime author Kathy Pickens wrote in an article for Medium titled, The Heartbreaking Case of Susan Smith and the Death of Her Two Boys, the story was literally a Southern Gothic nightmare. I came across an interesting opinion piece about this case that ran in the Huntsville Times in July of 1995. It doesn't take a PhD in psychology to deduce what Susan Smith's self-image may have been at that point. By killing her two children, she was emulating the abuse that had originally been inflicted on her and which, symbolically at least, stalked her into adulthood. She transferred her objectification by others onto the powerless individuals in her care. The column went on to say, a rational society must hold this woman responsible for what she's done. But a rational society will also acknowledge that damaging relationships, familial or otherwise, demand some attention. Otherwise, we are left only with the unsatisfying task of deciding on a fitting punishment once the victims are buried. Our basic humanity demands accountability. Our common sense seeks an explanation that will lead to prevention. On July 29, 1995, Susan was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years. In recent years, Susan has been disciplined for self-mutilation 
and the use and possession of narcotics and marijuana. In 2000, she admitted to having sex with two different prison guards and moved from Columbia to a correctional institution near Greenwood. Those prison guards were sentenced to three months jail time and five years probation, respectively. She will be eligible for parole in 2024. Susan wrote a letter to reporter Harrison Cahill from the state newspaper in South Carolina. She said, and I quote, I'm not the monster society thinks I am. I am far from it. She also went on to say, the thing that hurts me the most is that people think I hurt my children in order to be with a man. That is so far from the truth. There was no motive as it was not even a planned event. I was not in my right mind. In September of 1996, another unexpected tragedy occurred at John D. Long Lake. A group of 10 people had driven out to the lake one Saturday night in a Chevy Suburban. They parked next to the boat ramp, shining the headlights of the vehicle onto the granite memorials that had been placed there to preserve the memories of Michael and Alex Smith. Five people had gotten out of the car when it started to roll down the embankment. There were four children and one adult still inside. The two people who had gotten out of the truck, including the wife and mother of four of the passengers inside, went into the water to try and save them. All 10 people drowned during the incident. Sheriff Howard Wells, the man who had been so instrumental in encouraging Susan to confess to her crime, told the media he could not figure out why no one was able to stop the truck from plunging 15 feet into the water. The entire family who drowned were from Buffalo, a small community outside of Union. 26-year-old Tim Phillips, his 22-year-old wife Angie, and their three children, Courtney, four, Malena, 23 months, and Kinsley, four months, were among those who died. Carl Sidney White, age 29, and Austin Cody Rudovetz, age three, both of South Carolina, also drowned in the accident. In a newspaper article about the accident, a Union County resident told a reporter of the lake, it's like it's haunted or something. It keeps taking lives. As I watched those first news interviews with Susan in the early days of the case, I couldn't help but think of a mother named Diane Downs, because as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I started reading Anne Rule's true crime books when I was still in high school. She wrote the book Small Sacrifices about Diane. Like Susan Smith, 27-year-old Diane Downs was also a single mother who had taken her children out for a late-night drive. Diane lived in Springfield, Oregon, and had three children, not two. In May of 1983, she drove her kids to a local emergency room. The staff there was shocked to see Christy, age 8, Cheryl, age 7, and Danny, age 3, bloodied in the back seat, suffering from gunshot wounds. Diane had also been shot in her left forearm, but her injury was not life-threatening. Little Cheryl did not survive. Police were skeptical when they interviewed Diane, and she tried to tell them a bushy-haired stranger had flagged her down on a rural country road. 
Why would a mom with three sleeping children in the back seat stop to help an unknown stranger? When she rolled her window down, he said he wanted her car, and when she refused to get out, he began shooting into the back seat. Police initially put out an alert to the community that there was a possible dangerous criminal in the area, but deep down, they were more skeptical of Diane's story than anything. In the months after the shooting, Diane seemed to relish the spotlight and participated in a number of media interviews. She also pointed to her own injury, although investigators theorized she could have shot herself as a way to throw off suspicion. The more police questioned Diane Downs, the more she grew defensive. Why would I have taken my kids to the hospital, she asked in one media interview. Wouldn't I have made sure they were dead and then cried crocodile tears? That's insane to think I would do such a thing and then bring the witnesses in against myself. That's crazy. Diane's son, Danny, had been asleep during the attack and didn't remember anything. Plus, he was so young, being only three. Christy, the oldest at age eight, had suffered a stroke as a result of her injuries and couldn't tell the police what had happened at first. A judge placed them in protective custody, and she eventually said she did not remember a stranger shooting them that night. Police eventually discovered a collection of Diane's diaries, which pointed to a relationship with a former co-worker at a post office. The man told her he did not want to be a father. Police arrested Diane on February 28, 1984. Her trial began in May. When she showed up to the courthouse at the start of the trial, jurors were shocked to see that Diane was pregnant. She told reporters she intentionally got pregnant because she missed her three children. I know you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect they give you, she said. And they give me love. They give me satisfaction. They give me stability. They give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And that's gone. They took it from me. But children are so easy to conceive. During the trial, when Christy, having survived months of physical and mental therapy, got on the stand, she told the packed courthouse that her mom was the one who pulled the trigger on the children. Although Diane maintained her innocence in the crime, she was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. She gave birth to a girl while in prison, and the baby was placed up for adoption. She has now grown and has done a couple of interviews about discovering the history of her biological mother's crimes. She doesn't know who her father is. Diane escaped from prison in 1987, but was tracked down to the home of another inmate's husband a few weeks later. She remains in prison in California and has been denied parole twice. In the spirit of Halloween, I want to take a quick break and share with you a book I was lucky enough to receive an advanced copy of called Spooky Great Smokies, Strange Hauntings, Strange Happenings, and Other Local Lore. This is a collection retold by author Essie Schlosser, who created the website AmericanFolklore.net. The book is also illustrated by Paul G. Hoffman. Here's the synopsis. The Great Smoky Mountains abound with spooky tales, like the story of the shadow woman who appears 
to a farmer each morning and evening to beg for a cup of milk. Skinned Tom is an East Tennessee haunt, though his is a sinister tale that warns the unfaithful to steer clear of local lovers' lanes for their illicit trysting. From the farmer who finds a cavern of skulls, to a moonshiner who makes a deal with a water demon, and the half-shaved ghost seeking vengeance to the first and only meeting of the Asheville Ghost Club, the Great Smoky Mountains and their foothills abound with spooky tales. Whether read aloud around a campfire or from the back seat of the family van, this is a collection to treasure. I want to read you the opening story of this collection, Shadow Woman, since it's just a few pages long, so you can get a feel for what to expect from the book. It's terrible sad, a nice girl like Tilly dying so young, my wife said as she kneaded the dough on our big kitchen table. The neighbors said they buried her in the cemetery this morning with her new baby in her arms. I remember Tilly when she was just a little girl, splashing in the creek with her sisters and making a right mess of her Sunday go-to-meeting dress. It sure is sad, I replied distractedly. We'd just returned from a week's visit with our boy down in Knoxville, and my mind was preoccupied by a bad cough old Sal had developed while we were away. I wondered if I should ask Granny to have a look, since she was a right hand at animal doctoring. I was pulled from my thoughts when a soft clot of dough bounced off my nose. I rubbed the spot sheepishly and looked across the table at my grinning wife of nigh on 25 years. You aren't listening to me, she said, an oft-heard complaint. You're thinking about your nanny goat again. I chuckled. Are you jealous of a goat, I asked, fulfilling my part of the daily ritual. If and I ever leave you, it's on account of that there goat, my bride said with a wink. You think more about her than you do about me. She's got a cough, I said defensively. Probably something she ate, said my wife. She'll throw it up eventually, like she always does. Now get out to that barn and get the milking done. It's near dinner time. I brought in the cows and settled into the evening chores. I was just setting myself down to milk the cows when a shadow blocked the barn doorway. I looked up and saw a slim woman silhouetted against the evening sun. She was wearing a raggedy black dress, and I couldn't make out her face in the dim light of the barn. Hello, I called uncertainly. I thought I knew everyone hereabouts, but I didn't recognize the silent figure. The woman held a tin cup in her thin hand. She stretched it out toward me in such a pleading manner that I took it once and filled it with fresh milk. There you go, I said, returning it to her hand. She turned and walked out of the barn, vanishing into the final sunbeams of the day without saying a word. It was strange, I told my wife over dinner. I don't know where she came from or where she went. She was just there and then gone again. It's probably one of the folks from over the hill whose cow's gone dry, she said calmly. Maybe, I said doubtfully. I was pretty good at keeping track of the folks hereabouts. This shadow woman wasn't someone I knew. Or was she? I tried to chase down a vague memory, but it escaped me. How's your goat? asked my wife. All thoughts of the shadow woman vanished, as I described in minute detail the hacking cough old Sal had made, twice, 
when I brought her into the barn. I was up at sunrise to milk the cows, and the shadow woman was back too. She didn't respond to any of my questions. She just held out her cup and waited for me to fill it. Even in daylight, a shadow veiled her face, a fact that made the hairs on my neck prickle. I worried over the matter most of the day as I went about my chores. Between old Sal's cough and the shadow woman, it was a miracle I got any work done. Stop your frettin', my wife advised, as she pegged out the washing on the line. I heard that cough of old Sal's, and it's the same one she always gets when she eats something she shouldn't. There's guilt in that cough. Mark my words. The last time I heard it, she ate your favorite blue shirt. Old Sal was still hacking away when I brought the stock into the barn that evening. I'll have to ask Granny to come over and doctor her, I thought, as I reached for the milk stool. All at once, the shadow lady stood beside me with her cup. There was an air of urgency about her this evening that gave me the jitters. I watched her vanish into the setting sun with her cup of milk and frowned with concern. Something was wrong. Why does she need a cup of milk every morning and evening, I asked my wife after dinner. My wife thought on this question for a piece, then said, I don't know, but I think we should find out. You should follow her to see where she's going with the cup. If and when we find out who she is, we can figure out how to help her without injuring her pride. The shadow woman appeared with her cup as soon as I entered the barn the next morning. I filled it with warm milk and watched her disappear out the barn door. Then I tiptoed after her, using my best coon tracking skills to keep her from suspecting that she was being followed. The shadow woman walked up the road a piece, and the further we went, the more nervous I got. There wasn't anything there but the cemetery. Why would she go there? The slim figure glided past the laurel thicket and into the graveyard. I followed, whisper silent behind. The shadow woman walked toward a headstone, marking a freshly dug grave, and vanished inside with her cup. I just about had a heart attack. Lord Almighty, I gasped, reeling backward. I'd been giving milk to a haint. But why did a ghost need a cup of milk? It didn't make sense. Then I remembered my wife telling me about a cove girl and her newborn baby who'd been buried on the day we got back from Knoxville. That was also the first night the shadow woman came to our barn to ask me for a cup of milk. A bolt of pure fear set my feet a-running. I lit down that road faster than a man with a bear chasing him. Mildred, I shouted as I skidded into the yard. Mildred! My wife stomped across the yard, waving something frilly and torn. My best drawers, she roared. That old goat of yours ate my best drawers. She just threw them up again and they're ruined. She stopped abruptly when she saw my pale face. What's ailing you, she demanded, dropping her ruined knickers into the waiting jaws of old Sal, who'd follow her from the barn. That shadow woman, it's Tilly. Her haint came back from the grave to feed the baby. It's still alive. Mildred gaped at me for a moment. Then she snapped. What are you waiting for? 
Get a shovel and your carpentry tools and we'll call on the neighbors. You can't dig that grave up by yourself. We recruited the neighbors and went to the cemetery to dig up the grave. It was hard work, but fear motivated us. Before long, we could hear the whimpers of the poor little baby buried alive with its dead mama. Thank the Almighty, we were in time to save it. It took some doing, prying the lid off that coffin, but at last we were looking down into the sweet dead face of Tilly, the shadow lady. A small whimpering bundle was nestled in her arms and a tin cup full of warm milk lay beside her. And now, let's get back to the episode. Next, I want to talk about the unusual disappearance of Karina Malinowski and her daughter, Annette Sagers. On November 21st, 1987, Karina was scheduled to work a shift at a gas station in Somerville, South Carolina. When she failed to show up, her boss went looking for her in the 6,000-acre Mount Holly plantation, where her husband Stephen worked as a caretaker and the family lived in a cabin on the property. There, her boss found Karina's car parked at the entrance to the plantation. Stephen Malinowski told the deputies in Berkeley County that he had last seen his wife the night before when they had argued and Karina left in her car to go out driving. A search of the plantation and the surrounding areas turned up nothing. Stephen and Karina had married in 1981. Karina brought her young daughter Annette Sagers into the marriage, and then Stephen and Karina had two more biological sons. At the time she went missing, the two boys were both under the age of four. Investigators learned Stephen and Karina had a volatile marriage and suspected domestic violence, but they never had any concrete proof Stephen had harmed his wife. Almost a year after Karina went missing, 11-year-old Annette, accompanied by her dog, went to wait for her school bus at the entrance to the plantation. One bus driver who happened to go by saw Annette with her dog around 7 a.m., but when her bus arrived 20 minutes later, Annette was nowhere to be found. Her stepfather, Stephen Malinowski, didn't realize Annette was missing until she failed to return home from school that afternoon. He found a handwritten note left behind at the small wooden shelter in front of the plantation where Annette used to wait for the bus. The note read, Dad, Mom came back. I have to go with her. Give the boys lots of kisses and hugs and also you too. Love, Annette. Handwriting analysis revealed that the handwriting did belong to Annette but investigators couldn't tell under what circumstances she wrote it. The surrounding community rallied and canvassed the area, passing out flyers with Annette's photo on them, but no additional evidence turned up. People in the area wondered if Karina really had left of her own free will and returned to take Annette with her a year later. Investigators were more skeptical. After Annette disappeared, Stephen Malinowski relocated to Florida where he abandoned the two sons he'd had with Karina. They were later placed in foster care and adopted. The sons have since spoken with investigators, but they were so young when their mom and sister went missing that they don't remember much except for the loud arguments their parents used to have. Earlier this year, 
The Oxygen True Crime Network aired a special about this case and interviewed members of the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office cold case team, Lieutenant Dean Kokinda and Sheriff Dwayne Lewis. They stated that Stephen Malinowski is a person of interest in both cases and that they don't believe Karina or Annette are still alive. They've begun collaborating with a team from the College of Charleston to try and determine where the mother and daughter's bodies might be buried. As part of this process, the team at the college is trying to narrow down the 6,000 acres of the Mount Holly Plantation to 100 or 200 acres, which is a more manageable area to search. Here's another interesting note. A pond on the property of the plantation was drained in the 1990s, and a rolled-up carpet was found. The caretaker of the property reached out to the police at the time, but the carpet was never retrieved or tested for evidence and has since been destroyed. Then, in 2000, someone phoned into the police department with an anonymous tip to search a wooded area in Sumter County, which is about 90 minutes away from the plantation. The search failed to uncover any evidence. I think it's highly unlikely that Karina left her three young children with Stephen and vanished, only to return a year later and coax Annette to go with her. Hopefully these renewed efforts by the cold case team can finally lay this mystery to rest once and for all. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are available. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>